The Fake Show podcast is brought to you by the law firm of Hutchison & Stefan, The Craft House Brewery, now with two locations. The Tone Factory Recording Studio. Moonshot.com t-shirt designs. Mr. Antenna, now your host, Jim Tofty. A flock of seagulls formed in Liverpool in 1979, right as the new wave movement was ascending and MTV began broadcasting just a few years later. The group featuring lead singer and keyboardist Mike Score had a string of international hit singles, including Iran, Space Age Love Song, Wishing, and many more. They were part of what was called the Second British Invasion, and they even won a Grammy Award for an instrumental. In 2018, the core members of the band reunited to record an album with the Prague Philharmonic Orchestra, and they're at it again with part two called String Theory and a new tour. I've got Mike Score from A Flock of Seagulls on the line right now. Mike, how how are you? And welcome to the show. Hi, Jim. I'm fine and glad to be on your show. Oh, thanks for uh, stopping by. Are you in America? or you, I know that you split homes in, in what, Florida and Liverpool? Yeah, I, yeah I'm, in, I'm in, actually in L.A. and I'm doing, I did a couple of shows and now I'm in the recording studio d- doing uh, some work on a new album. You know, I always thought that with your early albums, A Flock of Seagulls, that there was seemed to be a strong influence of ELO and David Bowie there. Is that a pretty fair assessment? Uh, both, both artists that I loved. ELO, especially because of the way they wrote their songs. You know, that was the first, I think, the first I ever heard that kind of thing with an orchestra involved in pop music, you know, and... and David Bowie obviously was a total innovator, and because I was into sci-fi, um, yeah, space oddity and space stuff, you know, space uh, man and whatever, star man, um, yeah, and his image was incredible. So, um, yeah, both I would say both huge influences on me and a flock of seagulls. Yeah, I know you ran with the music and the image, and and you guys were perfect for MTV. They must have just been begging you for more and more material. Um, it seemed, it, I don't know whether it was MTV or the record company, but it seemed like every month they were like, we need to make a new video. We need to do, yeah. you know, we need to enhance your image even more. And it's kind of like, you know, we were just kids from Liverpool with our own little image going on. And um, it's kind of weird because when it first started, the record company weren't into that. But once the MTV got going and when they saw us on TV and all that, they went, wow. More, more of that, more, more seagulls, more, uh, more wacky kind of hairdos and stuff. <laughs> yeah. And, well, <laughs> so, so how do you, how do you fit in all of that, the touring, the video shooting and, and making albums uh, short of the fact that you guys were young? I mean, how did you do it? You know what? In a way, you just keep going until you fall over, Yeah. you know, and part of the thing with bands that break up is because, you know, you start out as four kids from Liverpool, right? You go on the road, you make an album, you get a deal, you make an album, it's released, you get bigger and bigger and bigger. You end up playing huge places and every day the pressure ramps up, you know. Um, so after about three or four years of starting off as friends, you end up as hating each other for the little quirks in your lives, you know what I mean? Yeah. Like somebody smokes and you you suddenly go stop fucking stop smoking right. because you know i i don't smoke and i don't like it so you end up 
attacking each other like that. And after three or four years, you don't want to see that person anymore. I didn't understand why bands split up until I was in a band that split up. It's funny. And, I, uh, I, I recently talked, uh, Mike, to uh, Colin Hay of Men at Work, and, and he said sort of the same thing. You know, he says, we're young guys, but you just get on each other's nerves because you're with each other 24 hours a day. Exactly. You know, and you have different artistic views and that whole remember that whole thing of uh, different artistic views yeah that's why i left the band yeah and then you find out well it it's true in a way but really it's i left because you know that guy doesn't make his bed in the morning or whatever yeah, yeah. some crazy thing you know right but um until that point everything's brilliant and as the more the band goes on and be be successful the pressure gets higher and higher and eventually something's got to give, you know? So how, with that in mind, how did the songwriting work back on those first few albums? And I think that you originally were not supposed to be the lead singer. I was kind of just like an ideas person. I would come into the band with, Oh, I had this idea last night and I played this. Uh, and I think the, the vocals should go kind of like this. So for a, about probably about a year, we looked for a singer and so I would sing at rehearsals and then everybody would say, well, it sounds good when you sing it. But when we get that other guy in to sing it, it doesn't sound as good. Or and I think that was because I wrote the lyrics, you know, so I was singing them the way I thought they should be. And eventually it was like, well, we've got a record deal. We've got this. We've got that. You're the singer, <laughs> you know, yeah. you're the singer songwriter guy. Um, I think of myself more as a synth player than a singer. But uh, uh, I guess I'm a singer, too. Yeah, it worked out all right. Well, you know, I tell yeah. you, I, I, I love Space Age Love Song and, and Wishing and Traveler. But Iran was, that was the big one, wasn't it? That was the big seller. Um, yeah, I mean, that was, that was the one the record company really jumped at, you know, because they thought with the guitar, America was having problems adapting to just synth bands and we weren't just a synth band we were you know kind of a rock synth band so um they said yeah you know that's the one we'll go with and you can't argue with them they were perfectly right mike are you are you playing pinball as we're talking (laughs) (laughs) actually i'm i'm sitting in my truck and it's talking to me <laughs> <laughs> right I, I totally understand well i loved how uh, space age love song was used in the john hughes film career opportunities i don't know if the song made the film or the film made the song but it sure was great wasn't it that that song i don't know it did it, it, it seems to me to be everybody's favorite although it wasn't the biggest hit um i think it emotionally it speaks to people and um Every time I hear it in some situation, it seems to adapt itself to the situation. Um, Simplest song you could ever write, and uh, it just carries uh, an atmosphere. Yeah, good point. Well, and in the film, it didn't hurt that Jennifer Connelly was dancing to your song. I suppose that enhanced it. Well, it enhanced it for me, yeah. (laughs) (laughs) So, all of, interestingly enough, Mike, all these years later, you had to be very proud of winning Best Instrumental Performance Grammy for DNA back in 1983, because it had to be kind of unexpected. You know what? In, in 83, we didn't even really know what Grammys were. You know, they were yeah. these things off in the distance, right? So 
when we got nominated, we're like, oh, wow, that's something. And then we won it uh, for Best Instrumental, which now takes us back to, to was I really a singer? Because I didn't win it for being a singer. <laughs> <laughs> We got a Grammy, and that was amazing. Yeah, well, you got one for your synth playing, I guess, after all, didn't you? Yeah, yeah. <laughs> <laughs> well, uh, over you know the years, I'm wondering now, with the way things are with uh, COVID and everything, are you going to be touring again? I know you're very active in the studio. Yeah, I mean, we had a year, maybe actually more like 15 months without doing a show. And we've just started doing shows again. We just played a couple of pretty big shows in LA and now in October we are going on I think we've got about 16 shows um we have to be careful at each show and uh you know make sure that that everything's good that the, the venues have to make sure that everybody's safe but we're ready to go and play um anywhere that it's safe and it's set up properly and I think I think audiences and fans are ready to go out and and have fun watching the band and having a good time. You know, COVID is a bad thing, but we've all got to live with it right now. Yeah. Well, I tell you, you're back with this second installment of your orchestral hits opus, uh, String Theory. It's Mike Score and a Flock of Seagulls String Theory available now. It's great. Your material certainly lends itself to that and i'm so happy that you did that mike stay safe and uh good luck on future uh, touring events thanks a lot jim glad to talk to you nice talking to you and as i you know as i've talked to a bunch of music artists the past few months some of them are getting ready to start touring some of them are already on the road i just hope that it continues for not only the fans but also for the bands we need each other Well, that does it for this episode of The Fake Show Podcast. Thanks for tuning in. I'm Jim Tofty. I'll see you next time. Listen to The Fake Show anywhere on SoundCloud, Stitcher, iTunes, and thefakeshow.com.